What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today we have a Q&A episode, and normally when I do these Q&As, I pick like 10 or 15 of the questions. I'll go through them a little bit in my brain as to kind of where I want to go. Today, we're going to keep it a little bit more rapid fire. I have not seen any of these questions. We're going to just go for about 25, 30 minutes, see how many I can get through, a little bit more rapid fire style. So first question, not going to name names, just kind of read the question here is, how long does it take to answer all the Q&As? I appreciate all the content. Uh, it takes anywhere from like 45 minutes to an hour, sometimes a little bit more than that, um, sometimes up to 90 minutes, depending if I, go, if I go through every single one and if they take a bit longer, if I go in a bit more depth on them. But honestly, I like doing Q&As. It is a part of social media that I quite enjoy. I don't think I enjoy every single part of social media equally. And so, you know, sometimes when I, you know, when I have a coach ask me about, you know, how to get to better at social media, which I don't think is something that I'm particularly good at, but usually one of the pieces of advice that I have is to to kind of lean into the parts of social media that you quite enjoy, that are gonna be less emotionally draining, that you could be more consistent with and do well. Usually those things are gonna correlate what you enjoy doing and what you will do well. And for me, I like doing Q and A's and for other people they hate doing Q and A's. And so this is something that I like to do. And so it's something that I definitely lean into and I hope you guys get value from it, whether we're doing it here, uh, podcasting or on Instagram. Next question, bit tired. I'm a bit tired of training. If I were to focus on a few exercises three times a week, which ones should that be? So I think if I think this is already a, co- a question that's asked in the context of not necessarily worried about getting the best gains, because obviously this is an, a, a moment of saying, you know, I don't want it to all go to shit. What's like a minimum effective dose that I could do? And if I were to do that, what exercises would I choose? I think the, the like compound exercise versus isolation exercise discussion is a bit, it's a bit dead in hypertrophy. That's not, that's not necessarily a, um, whether an exercise is compound or isolation isn't necessarily by itself something I would strongly consider in hypertrophy contexts. There's other things to worry about, to focus on, how complex an exercise is, um, the resistance profile of that exercise, muscles that are worked, uh, uh, you know, stimulus to fatigue ratio. There are other things that I'd think about in hypertrophy, but in this context, in this like minimum effective dose, I want to still do some training, but I want to decrease how much I'm doing because I'm just a bit out of it. Uh, I think looking for compound, quote unquote, compound exercises or exercises that work multiple joints and more muscle groups than isolation exercises. I think that that's where I would lean in. So which ones would that be? It'd be compound lifts. Lifts that work a lot of muscle tissue, so you don't need to do as much and you can cover a bit more of your bases. So a squat pattern, a hinge pattern, maybe a split squat pattern, some form of bilateral pressing movement, some form of pulling movement, some form of a row, push down, uh, a pull down. Um, I know that that's a bit vague and to give you, you know, it's, it's just within those movement patterns, the exercise selection is slightly less important. And so do you need to do a bilateral back squat Doesn't with a barbell? Like not as important as that you're doing some form of squatting pattern at all. However, that's loaded. There's a lot of different ways to go about doing that. So I would do a squat, a hinge, a press, a pull, uh, maybe a lunge, and you know potentially some form of again a horizontal press, maybe and a vertical vertical press and a horizontal pull and a vertical pull. But I would look for exercises that will work a lot of muscle groups at once: a deadlift, an RDL, a squat, a split squat, rows, pull, uh, overhead pulls, overhead presses, horizontal presses, and maybe I would do slightly less single joint movements, so maybe slightly less triceps and biceps and maybe slightly less leg extension ham curl and focus a little bit more on compound lifts. Next question, should we be taking creatine for muscle growth? The the, the should in this question is always like, should? I mean, I, 
I don't know if you should or not. All I can tell you is that creatine is helpful for muscle growth, has no downside, is basically free. Um, it's also not magic, by the way. Like, I think we talk about creatine like it is magic. Creatine is only, could only be considered magic because it's one of the supplements that actually works. So in a sea of stuff that probably doesn't do shit, it is something that actually works. And so it is kind of like this magical thing, but in the context of all the things that lead to muscle growth and strength increases and performance increases, whether you take creatine or not is not a needle mover. I promise, it really is not. You know, um, It's not gonna drastically change your strength and performance, your hypertrophy outcomes, but it does definitively help. And so it's this thing that in a world of stuff that probably does nothing, it's something that definitively helps, has no health downsides, has no quality of life or cost downsides. There's just all upside, no downside. Is it a big needle mover? Definitely not. But it's something that like I always laugh because it's like if you take any supplement at all, if you're some, somebody listening to this and I'm like, hey, do you take any supplements? And you take anything, but you don't take creatine, to me that's like a, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because if you're gonna take any supplement that helps at all, you start with creatine. It's like the most well-researched supplement in existence. Um, so should you, I think, yeah, I think you should be taking creatine if muscle growth is your goal, uh, but it, you're also not missing out a ton. I just think that there's, there's just no reason not to, that's all. No really good compelling reason not to. Next question, if I have no room for a functional trainer, is a single pulley tower a good investment for a home gym? Absolutely yes, 100% yes. Um, seriously, a lot of the stuff that we do bilaterally with a functional trainer, you know, uh, whether that's, you know, facing away cable curls or these cross cable extensions or these behind the back lateral raises, or I, and I'm naming a lot that I use in my programming, inline cable front raises, um, Yes, some cable pressing. Almost all of them, and specifically all the ones I just listed, can be done unilaterally and are really great unilaterally. And even things like chest supported lat pull downs, which are all the rage right now, you only need a single cable pulley stack for that exercise. Um, a lot of rowing options, because even if you only have one cable stack, chances are you're gonna attach some sort of handle that allows for both of your hands to work at the same time. A single cable pulley stack is amazing. And I know that there are a lot of people in my group program who have like a pulley pro or some single top bottom cable that they've attached to their squat rack. And it has given them just an, uh, a lot of new options for them. So I think it is a wonderful idea, a great addition to your home gym. You might not have room for a big functional trainer, but you might have room for a single cable tower. And I think it's an amazing purchase. I also know that they make, um, they, one of my clients has this. It looks like a single cable tower, but it actually has two different cables on it. So two different, instead of those cables, just imagine a functional trainer, which has two cables that are like, I don't know, six feet apart. This is two cables that are like one foot apart or like six inches apart. Uh, and it does allow for some uh, ability to kind of manipulate each of those hands and do some of those exercises bilaterally. Um, but I think a, a single cable tower, I actually almost purchased one from Prime. I think they have an amazing single cable tower, but I'm sure there are other brands as well that do too. So great purchase, definitely would do that. Next question, should you cut before a build? Would it have any effect on fat gain? So let's talk physiologically. Is there a physiological reason to get leaner before you gain, right? Um, be, the, so I, can, I know the question you're asking. You're asking is if I'm leaner when I start gaining weight or going into a build phase, will my results be better? Will I gain more muscle per pound of weight gained if I do that while I'm leaner? And this is something called the P ratio. The 
P ratio is basically for every pound that you gain, what percentage of that is muscle and what percentage of that is fat. And it was once to be, it was once believed that the leaner you were, the better P ratio you would get. And so a leaner person would, all things being equal, per pound they gain, let's say you take one person who's 10% body fat and one person who's 20% body fat, and they go into the same size surplus. It was once believed that the person who's 10% body fat would gain a, have a better P ratio, would gain more muscle to fat per pound than the person who's 20% body fat. That has since been almost entirely debunked, and it turns out that this really doesn't make a difference. It's not like the heavier you get, the worse your P ratio or the worse your ratio of muscle to fat per pound gained will be. It turns out that's absolutely not the case, which is really cool because it, it turns this question into a question of, I don't know, do whatever you wanna do, right? I mean, if you really wanna build muscle, and you're in a place where you're totally fine gaining some body fat from where you're at right now, but there's this thought in your brain of like, oh no, I need to get really lean before I do that so I can maximize results. You don't need to think that. The only thing that the question that you have in front of you right now is, am I okay gaining body fat from where I am right now? That's it. You know, the only reason to get leaner before you gain is if doing so allows you to spend more time in that gain before you get uncomfortable. You know, if you're a guy who's 17% body fat, and you start gaining, you might start to feel on, I don't know, again, these are all just very general statements. Please, body fat percentages is just a fucking extremely black hole of like nebulous, we don't know for sure. So let's, the point is, if you are already a person with more body fat, chances are you're gonna sooner be uncomfortable if you gain more body fat from here. If you are a leaner person, chances are there's more runway in front of you before you start to feel uncomfortable. But that truth is that that's a very personal question to you. You might be like, yeah, where I'm at, I'm totally comfortable going up from here in the pursuit of muscle growth, even if it means gaining a couple pounds. So should you cut before you build? Only if you want to, only if, only if building from where you are right now isn't something that you think would feel very good. You don't have to, you don't have a, physi a compelling physiological reason to do so. Next question, uh, focus on two intelligent upper body days, build, and then later switch to lower body than just maintain upper body. Focus two intelligent upper body days, uh, build, and then later switch to lower body than just maintain upper body. I'm not really sure what that means. Sometimes these questions come through and there's just like a little bit of miscommunication here. Uh, I'm not really sure, you know, if you build your upper body, basically saying, could you, could you build your upper body to a point in which you're happy with how much muscle you have and then switch your upper body volume to just maintenance volume so you can maintain your upper body and continue to push lower body? Um, you could totally do that. Um, the other context you might be referring to is if you're only training twice a week, could you just train upper body in a surplus, build some muscle there, and then switch to lower body and maintain your upper body? Uh, maybe you obviously have to train your upper body a little bit at, at least maintenance volume. Not really necessarily positive, exactly sure which of those you meant. Uh, so, uh, Arsenal have been on fire this preseason. I'm a big Arsenal fan. It's a soccer team in the English Premier League. How excited are we for the season? I'm pretty excited. Uh, I always laugh because like sports, sp just the idea of sports and the idea of like people caring about sports like makes no logical sense. Like it has no actual bearing on the world. Um, but I'm, I'm a big soccer fan and, and big Arsenal fan and uh, I really do enjoy it. It's something that I do with my friends and we watch the games and it's definitely a way that to like in, just enhances my life socially in that way. Um, I'm really excited for the season. As always, I don't know like how many of the people listening to this, you know, either give a shit or have any idea about soccer, but soccer fans are just like, you know, I would say just like every other fan that gets like overly optimistic for no good reason. Like 
I'm overly optimistic again. I think we're going to do great. I, I'm always this in this state and I'm, I'm ready to get hurt again is the mentality here. So I think we're going to do awesome, but you know, I'm ready to get hurt again. Michelle. Oh, I, I said I wasn't going to say names. Well, all right. Uh, asks, what Harry Potter character are you? Wow. Well, let's do some process of elimination here because this one's catching me off guard here. Um, I'm not Harry. I'm not Hermione. I'm not Draco. I'm not Neville. I'm not Luna. I'm not Dumbledore. God, I'm not Snape. I'm not Hagrid. Honestly, I think by process of elimination, and actually it's starting to think of this as, I think, I'm, I think I'd be the most like Ron, actually. I think some of Ron's actual um, issues, like things that he needs to work through, like confidence-wise as well, were some things that I had to work, work through. I mean, Ron matures like crazy over the course of the, um, the series. Um, and I think that that's something that I can relate to a little bit. And, um, you know, he's not overly altruistic, I guess, like Harry, maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't think I would be any of them perfectly. I think that that's, I mean, that's like anything, but I think if I had to pick, I probably would be Ron. That would be probably the person that I relate the most to. Um, but certainly not entirely. As I'm saying that there are things that I'd, I'd say I would not relate to, but I don't think I'm Harry. I'm not Hermione. Not Luna, I'm not Hagrid. <sighs> Maybe I'd relate the most to Fang. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, cool. Good question. I would certainly not be, I don't think I would be in Gryffindor. Gryffindor. I I think I would be a Ravenclaw, actually. Um, some some Ravenclaw, Slytherin hybrid, potentially, would be my guess. Next question. Is it okay to continue with dumbbell squats and deadlifts with mild hip bursitis if there's no pain discomfort during... So I'll start by saying I'm not a physical therapist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a pain doctor, pain specialist, pain specializing in, in alleviating pain is not my specialty. That's a bit redundant. Um, but I've worked through enough pain myself with physical therapists and are, obviously I'm in this circle to some degree. And so again, take everything I say with a grain of salt. Definitely talk to your own physical therapist and your own people who specialize in this first. But my inkling would be that if there's no pain and discomfort currently, that we can't be sure that what you're doing is something bad long-term. And so if you're doing something with no pain currently, chances are that's really good and you can build strength in that range of motion in this movement. And so my gut would say, absolutely, yes, it's okay to continue with this. I would think about your technique a ton. I would think about load management a ton, making sure you're not doing too much, putting too much pressure on these joints over time, you know, taxing those joints in the same way with the same movements over time. I would just pay attention to your load management. And frankly, that's something we all need to do. And so if you start to catch on that there are things that are causing you pain that when you, you know, maybe when you do eight sets of squats and deadlifts very close to failure throughout the course of the week. That's, you know, over three or four weeks, that's when you start to experience a flare up in pain that that might be an indication of like, oh, maybe that's too much volume. But I don't, I'm, honestly, if you feel good, then I, I would take that as a very good sign that what you're doing is not going to lead to something bad. And in only most cases would probably lead to good things, which is building strength in that area. Next question. Is there an optimal time to take fish oil? Is it more effective with food? Not that I know of, uh, to be honest with you, these things just work whenever you're thinking about like these acute factors, what time should I take this around the training with food? With food sometimes is relevant, um, but these things happen, these things have a benefit over a long time scale. Uh, taking fish oil is not an acute thing. It's not like taking caffeine. Caffeine has an acute benefit. The minute you take caffeine within an hour, it's peaked in your bloodstream, you're getting the effects, then it goes away, you lose the effects. Stuff, stuff like fish oil, um, 
tends to have a benefit over the long term. And it's probably more of a cumulative benefit, we would say. And so I don't think that it matters. Um, maybe there's something to taking it with food, but I, I can't think of why that would be. Um, and so if there's someone out there who knows the answer, and I'll take a peek afterwards as well, but I don't actually think it matters. I, I don't think taking your supplements with food is ever a bad idea. There are some supplements you absolutely want to take with food or some supplements, some medicine, medications. Um, and so I don't think it's a bad idea. And I also don't think it's a very hard thing to do is my my kind of gut feeling. It's like, it's not difficult to, to habit stack your supplement intake with a meal. Uh, and I certainly don't think there's a downside and, and maybe it's more optimal with food, but uh, I would not have a good reason to believe that for fish oil. Next question is music playlist ideas. I need some new inspiration. Go back to high school you and what you were jamming jamming out to in your room, you know, hopping around during the Snapchat days or whatever was going on then um, would be what I would go to. I literally have a playlist called High School Playlist and it is just shit that, and you know what it's funny? I've been thinking about this sometimes with music um, because like there's a certain point in your life where you don't want new music or like you subconsciously don't need new music. I'm certainly at a place where music is a big part of my life. When we were in college, we, we ran a music blog that we, I got to meet a lot of my favorite artists. I got to interview a lot of my favorite artists. We got to go to a lot of shows. Um, I thought that that was something I was going to go into career wise, whether that was writing or whatever, some form of media, um, and still a big part of my life, going to shows, going to concerts, you know, I love music is a, in air quotes, fucking everybody likes music, but there was a point where like, I am at a point now where like, I, yeah, I follow new music in the genres that I like, but I'm certainly not like what I used to do, which is like wake up every morning, go to checking everybody's new releases and all of this stuff. Um, but I really, the interesting part is I think music is like one music and you could also say like another thing would be like smells, but we'll get to that another time. But music is like the ultimate time machine. Like people like music that, that make, that makes them travel back to a different place when they felt a certain way. Um, and I think that that's so fascinating because there, I, you know, my dad could listen to, you know, whatever it is, Rolling Stones and some of the stuff that he grew up listening to. And it, it travels him back to those moments when he first heard it, you know, and I, and we all have that music, whether it's music that you like objectively, like I could hear a new song that I really like because I like the archetype of the song. I literally just like the song, but it won't make me feel the same as a song that is very similar, but I heard first when I was 15, you know, there's a connection to those songs for sure. Um, and so for me, I go back in time. If I need inspiration, I go back in time. I pick songs that just like bring me back to a place um, where, you know, I felt a certain way. And it's, it's very subconscious. You're not like actively thinking about this. So I, I would go back and find the stuff that you loved when you were younger. Um, for me, that stuff always gets me hyped. For me, honestly, that's like, Stuff like Yellow Card and some of the punk, more punk uh, rock, you know, 90s and early 2000s stuff um, absolutely gets me going for sure in a non-creepy way. Um, next question is, I can't develop upper chest. Which exercises do I recommend? Um, you meaning you're having a difficulty developing the upper chest and which should you do to develop the upper chest? Um, upper chest exercises... It's called your clavicular pec. It's one of the three divisions of the pec. It's the one that attaches to the clavicle. Um, and basically, you'll want to do dumbbell pressing on an incline, something like a 30-ish degree incline, not much higher than that, as it seems 40 to 60 degrees tends to be slightly better for front delts. But the cool part is anywhere from 30 to 60 degrees is going to hit the clavicular pec really well. It, you know, the higher you go, the more front delt you'll get, uh, and it will just kind of blend the gradient towards more front delt. 
Um, but you need to do upper, uh, sorry, uh, incline dumbbell pressing is a really, really great. You wanna make sure that when you're doing that incline pressing, your elbows aren't flared all the way out. Again, for those of you guys watching on YouTube, you can see, uh, you don't want your elbows flared all the way out. To work the clavicular upper portion of the chest, you're gonna want a more adducted, which just means arm slightly closer to the torso, elbow more tucked position. And as you press up, you're gonna wanna press up and over the clavicle and make sure you're finishing that rep with your arm and the dumbbell kind of in line with your clavicle if you're looking from the side. You can also do some incline or clavicular cable pressing, which is something you'll see on my story. Funny enough, I'm literally gonna post it when I'm done recording this podcast. It's something I've been doing lately as I'm also trying to build that portion of the pec. Um, and you can also do what's called a press around, which is a single arm cable press. And you can do that for the clavicular pec and it's gonna be a press more from the bottom up. Uh, and so again, essentially, if you're trying to work the upper portion of your pecs, chances are incline dumbbell pressing, incline cable pressing or clavicular cable pressing and keeping your elbow tighter to the torso is gonna line things up a bit better for those uh, for that division. Next question, thoughts on THC seems to make running more bearable. Oof, thoughts on THC is its own podcast entirely um, and I'm not gonna dive too deep into that. Um, seems to make running more bearable. I, I don't know much about, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know much about either of those topics. What I mean is that like, I don't consume much THC and I don't go for a lot of just arbitrary. I'm going to go for a run. That's not necessarily doing both of them is not something that I have experience, a lot of experience with. If it's making running more bearable, what I would say is there's no downside in adaptations. It's not like you're taking THC and it's blunting the adaptations that you get from the running cardiovascular adaptations, muscular endurance adaptations, it's certainly not doing that. And so if it's making it more bearable for you, then physiologically speaking, there's no downside. I don't know if they're, I don't know if I'm like advising that, um, but I don't think that there's a downside in terms of adaptations, that's for sure. Next question, uh, supinated grip in tricep pushdown, is that effective? Just remember that like, whether or not you're, so supinated would be an underhand grip. Just remember the triceps don't attach to the forearm in any spot. And so your forearm position is not changing the orientation, not changing the length of the triceps, any of the triceps in any way at all. And so what grip you use is technically speaking by itself irrelevant. And this goes for a lot of things. When you're doing a row, people like should I row with the palms down, neutral grip, palms up. The grip you use, none of the muscles on your back attach to your forearm. And so what your wrist is doing, what your forearm is doing is not affecting the length of those muscles. However, when it comes to grip, pronated, supinated, neutral grip, it tends to correlate with a certain arm path that does matter. And so, for example, for the lats, we want, you know, often we will say, hey, use a neutral grip for the lats. Why would we say that if the lats don't attach to the forearm? Who gives a shit what, what angle your wrist and forearm is on? It's because when you use a neutral grip, you're going to more likely keep your elbow. I mean, if, if you guys are thinking about this, if you have a neutral grip, chances are you're also gonna tuck your elbows a little bit. To have a neutral grip and flare your elbows is mega uncomfortable. And so for lats, we want the elbows tight to the torso. We want the arms tight to the torso. And the grip that's likely going to encourage that the most is a neutral grip. And so they're more like indirectly correlated. And so like if you wanna work your upper back, you're gonna want your elbows a bit more flared up or abducted up off the body. What grip makes that elbow flared arm path the most comfortable, the most likely, a pronated palms down grip, or at least a grip that matches that arm path. And so grip doesn't actually make a difference. You know, you could do lat work with the palms down. It would be possible totally. Um, 
Same thing with this tricep question where like you having an underhand grip doesn't tell me anything about whether or not you've, you know, enhanced the benefit of a tricep exercise. Um, and so, I, you know, it, it, I, for triceps, I care more about your shoulder position, your elbow position, what, what exercises you're choosing, how you're doing them. Underhand grip might make certain exercises getting into certain positions more comfortable. So one of the ones that I can think of is an overhead tricep extension. Sometimes using an underhand grip allows for the position you want to get into to be a bit more comfortable. And so this is more of a question of if I adopt this grip, what is going to be most comfortable for me in terms of arm path execution? And so as far as using a supinated grip in tricep pushdown, I don't think that makes much of a difference. I don't think I would do a traditional tricep pushdown almost ever, not because it's bad, just because you probably have much, uh, you probably have better options that are very easy to do than a traditional tricep bar pushdown. Um, it's probably, I mean, automatically, if you have a cable, I would rather you do a single arm tricep extension with the arm or elbow up off the body, like a single arm cross cable extension. Um, so hopefully that, that helps. Um, why do people hate front dumbbell raise so much and call it a shitty and dumb exercise? Wow, some people are mean. Um, I don't I don't know. I think that um, I don't think it is a shitty and dumb exercise, but if I had to put myself in their shoes, I might say that it is an exercise that's only hard in the short position. And it's only hard at the top, right? At the bottom of a front raise when your arm is straight down, there's no tension. That's when the muscle is is more lengthened and usually you'd want a bit more tension there. Um, that might be a critique, but I think that that's still just kind of in context it matters because there's gonna be times when that's something that you want. And so calling it a bad exercise without context, I think is misguided and, and probably not helpful for the average person. Um, I think everything you can do with front dumbbell raise, you could do probably better with a cable, but I, I still, uh, right now, literally in my group programming at home, we are doing a chest supported dumbbell front raise. And I think it's a fine exercise. Dude, if you wanna train the front delts, you have pressing and you have raising. And I think if you are already doing some work in the length of position with some well-designed presses for the front delts, you still want more front delt volume, chances are doing some sort of raise is gonna be a good idea. Is it a, the absolute perfect hypertrophy exercise if you had to do only one exercise? No, but you're not only doing one exercise and you don't have every piece of equipment in the world. And so, yeah, I don't think it's a bad exercise. I think I think it's about looking at things in context. Things have pros and cons given certain contexts and good programming is gonna take all of that into account. Next question, what's your rest recommendations for between sets? For hypertrophy, I'm guessing. Um, Here's the deal. So I'm going to steal this from Renaissance periodization. I, this is not my four-factor model is what they call it. But this is the thing that I would want most of you guys to start to understand. And then I'll give you a general recommendation. The goal of, for hypertrophy, the goal of sets for hypertrophy is to take the target muscle close to failure in more than five reps on average, right? So you want to bring the target muscle, not something else, target muscle close to failure. And you probably want to do more than five reps to accumulate enough high-quality volume. Um... And so you want to rest long enough to make that possible. Generally speaking, you want to rest long enough for your sets to be high quality. Now, what does that mean? You want to rest long enough to check four boxes. Number one, that you are not, that your cardiovascular system will not be the limiting factor in the next set. And so if you did a set of back squats, resting 30 seconds, you're still going to be huffing and puffing. Your heart rate's still going to be super high. And if you go into another set of back squats, chances are your cardiovascular system and not the target musculature will be the limiting factor. That's box number one. Don't let your cardio be the limiting factor. 
Number two would be synergist muscles. Don't let, don't let synergist muscles be the limiting factor. And so you might do a set of back squats and you think, okay, my cardiovascular system is ready to go. I should go now. But maybe your lower back needs another minute. Maybe your core needs another minute. Maybe some of those muscles aren't ready just yet. And so you need to rest long enough for those synergist muscles to come back to baseline so they are not the limiting factor in your next set. Then you need to rest long enough for the target muscle to actually recover enough to do at least five reps. And that one is usually the shortest time scale, I'd say. And so that one's almost not ever going to be a consideration because the other ones are going to take longer. And so if you rest long enough for those other ones, then you'll also be resting long enough for the target muscle to recover enough to do five reps. And the last one is not a bit vague, but um, you want to rest long enough for your nervous system. I would I would call this your general state of readiness. If you do a hard set of back squats or RDLs, it's going to take you a couple minutes to to genuinely feel ready to attack that weight again. Generally feel ready to to do a another high quality strong set. Like if you man, I'm thinking of a, a hard set of leg presses. If if you catch me at the end of a hard set of leg presses and the funny leg press is actually high stability exercise, not actually the most uh, neurologically or cardiovascularly fatiguing, but is the one that came to my head. If you're done with a really hard set of leg presses, you went hard close to failure, it's a grueling set. It can be. Um I'm not ready to do that again emotionally. My nervous system, my neuro, my drive to perform well, my drive to do something hard again is not ready for a couple of minutes. And so you need to be, you need to rest long enough to make uh, your cardiovascular system not the limiting factor. Rest long enough so that your synergist muscles are not the limiting factor. Rest long enough that the muscle you're trying to actually take close to failure can do another at least five good reps and rest long enough that you feel strong again and ready to attack the weight. Now for hypertrophy, that's going to vary based on the exercise that you're doing. If you're doing a barbell back squat, that's going to be longer than if you're doing a dumbbell bicep curl. Now what I would say is, again, why is that the case? For a dumbbell bicep curl, there, you, there's basically no cardiovascular demand. There are basically no synergist muscles that are working. You need to rest long enough for your biceps to get back. And emotionally, it's not a taxing exercise. You're probably ready to go again fairly soon. Now, in the context of hypertrophy, chances are resting a bit longer is better than resting a bit shorter. And so I don't want you to be like, well, bicep curls, I can just rest 30 seconds. That's not true. Uh, I would still generally rest at least 90 seconds. So anywhere from 90 seconds up to five minutes can be really good. I think a lot of people want to generally just kind of throw three minutes at the wall and be like, yeah, three minutes for everything. Three minutes for everything will work great. But it, you know, maybe two minutes for certain things might still work really great and save you some time in your training. And so I think anywhere from 90 seconds up to five minutes can be applicable for hypertrophy. Um, but I, I do would I would rather see people skew on the slightly longer side than the slightly shorter side. If you're caught between two times, you're like, well, should I rest two minutes or two and a half minutes? Rest two and a half minutes. There is no downside in resting longer. There might be a downside in, in not resting long enough. And so I would I would want to see people fall on that side of the fence here. Let's do, we got another 10 minutes or so. Let's see how many more we can get through here. Um... Uh, any newbie tips for getting your back flat and straight for starting a deadlift? Um, the first thing that jumped to my mind, because I think there's a lot of like cues of like squeeze the orange and like pick your chest up. And some of these things might work for people. But what I just wanted to say with the thing that immediately jumps to my brain is that not everybody's going to be able to get into that position with a neutral spine, period. Not everybody is going to be able to pick up a bar from the ground with a neutral spine, full stop. Not everyone's gonna be able to do that. And that's not a that's not you being a little bitch and you can't do this. This is based on how people's structures are, how you are built. 
Not everybody is going to be able to pick up a bar from the ground with a neutral spine, period, end of story. And no, not everybody has to. Like, this is not like a, that when you're in your training, let's say you are a person who's like, hey, when I try and get into that position, I go into posterior pelvic tilt. I round at the lower back. There's just, I don't meet, remain neutral. That's that's not something to work on. It's not like, oh, I should work on that. So I could, like, why? No, you should elevate the bar to a height in which you can maintain a neutral spine. And so there's a lot of stuff you could work on, um, you know, to potentially changing your stance, potentially some cueing of uh, getting into a smidge more of anterior pelvic tilt, which would pull you into neutral. I'm not, I'm not advising excessive anterior pelvic tilt, although I don't necessarily think it's such a bad thing. Um, there are some things you could do from that regard, but there's a, what if you elevated the bar on one inch plates and all of a sudden you walk right up to the bar, you get into a really nice neutral spine position that fits your structure well, and you can work really hard and get strong here. That is what I would do. I do think that people who are doing deadlifts and hinge motions should be doing them with the most range of motion that they have available to them. Um, again, I wouldn't take that, extrapolate that to the nth degree, but I think if you can pick up a bar, from the ground with a neutral spine. That's the range of motion I would train. I wouldn't do what's called a rack pull, which is elevating the bar off the ground more than you need to. But I'll, I'll level with you. I don't I don't have the greatest, you know, my deadlift has never looked as good as Jenna's deadlift, let's say. I don't get into that position extremely comfortably. If I raise the bar up like with a, a small 10 pound bumper plate, all of a sudden I can walk right up to the bar, get into a strong stance, lift well, in a stable, neutral spine, and everything goes really well. And for me, that's gonna be better than worrying so much about arbitrarily picking up something from the ground when who fucking cares? That's a totally arbitrary range of motion. It's an arbitrary task. Instead of trying to make your structure fit the exercise, make the exercise fit your structure. That is how I would go about doing this. Next question is from, nope, we're not doing that. Uh, when is the next group, when, do, when does the next group start after the one that starts uh, on 8-1? So for those of you guys who don't know, we are in the midst of intro week for my group programming. We began the mesocycle this Monday, but it is intro week. And frankly, you can join the group anytime. I don't wanna make this a big fucking marketing advertising for the group, but you can join the group anytime. We are in the midst of intro week right now. I think this podcast should come out still this week. And so we are still in the midst of intro week. If you have any interest in joining the group, there's a seven day free trial. Now is when I would join. You can join whenever, but joining in the beginning of the mesocycle is probably the best time to get the most out of it. The next mesocycle will start exactly six weeks after eight one, which is uh, week one, one, two, three, four, five, which would be on September 12th. One, two, three, four, week five, week six. Oh, September 5th, September 12th. September 12th is the next group is the next mesocycle for the group. Yep. And so September 12th will be our next mesocycle. Cool. Next question is, can I mix creatine and coffee or doesn't matter as long as I'm getting creatine? Yes, you can mix creatine and coffee. Not the end of the world. Um, you know, that where there was some research where it doesn't absorb as well, but creatine is something you take every day. Again, it doesn't have acute benefits. It has cumulative benefits. As long as you're taking it every day, you're gonna be fine. Doesn't matter when you take it. Frankly, as long as uh, you're taking it at least three to five grams per day, probably even just five days a week would be enough to max out creatine stores, you're gonna be good to go. If I use both the gym equipment and home and home gym, which program would be best for me? So per personally right now, I have decided not to make it one group. So there are some coaches out there who do it's one group and you get 
the the gym program and the home program. And if you want to toggle between the two, you totally can. That's, I think that that's helpful sometimes, but to be honest, I didn't, what that shows me is that, that this person created a gym program and then just put a whole bunch of at-home swaps. And so for the people that are working out at home, they're just getting a little bit of a rundown version, a watered down version of the gym program. Now that sometimes is fine. Sometimes the program has a very good at-home swap. And to be honest, that's how I build the program too. I build the gym program and then I build the home program, seeing how much of it I can correlate across but they're not exactly the same. There are times I deviate, and instead of doing an exercise for the iliac lat, like we're doing in the gym program, we do an exercise for a different portion of the lat because the swap that you would do, I don't think is a high quality enough exercise. So they're not exactly the same to the point where you could just toggle between the two. Now, now you you can do that because I don't think what I just said matters so much. Um, and so if you wanted to do both programs, I would buy both programs. Both programs are still $54 a month total. It's still in context of what you get, I feel, still think underpriced. And so if you are somebody who's gonna work out in a hybrid of home and gym, I would buy both programs. That's not me trying to get you to buy both programs. It's just me admitting that I don't, I don't wanna encourage that because they're not the same program unless you are a person who only has this option. If you only have this option, I would consider buying both programs and you will be able to toggle between the two very, very easily. Um, cool. Next question. Is there any such thing as a as protein in pill form? If yes, recommendations. Not yet, but I'm sure some at some point in our uh, advancement in technology and food technology, we will get to a point where we can compress protein powder potentially into a pill form. I, I, I would bet that we get there at some point, but we're not there right now. Um, the, the closest we have is protein powder in water, shake it and chug it. That's the closest we have. That and like beef jerky. Like the closest we have to like very easily consumable protein, there is no capsule yet that you can swallow and get 20 grams of protein. I think when we get there, that's gonna be fantastic. I think it's gonna be an amazing development in just like human technology, nutritional technology. That's gonna be awesome. We're not there yet. The closest thing we have is protein powder that you mix in water and you chug, which I think is its own modern marvel, frankly. And so we don't, but I'll alert you when we do. Can I mix the creatine with protein shake? Yes, absolutely. That is a very easy way to just make sure you're getting it in whenever you have a shake. If volume is equated, is there any difference between a free and Smith squat for hypertrophy? Um, a free barbell squat and a Smith squat, if volume is equated, like if you're doing the same sets and reps and proximity to failure, is there a difference in hypertrophy? Yeah, probably a little bit. And assuming your, your technique is the same, I think a Smith squat is massively underrated, frankly. I think the stability of the Smith machine is massively underrated. I don't think there will be a big difference, by the way. I don't think there will be a big difference. And so I think that you could toggle between these two. You could pick which one that you think you perform best. Um, and you might use the Smith squat later in a session due to the low external stability requirements, meaning you don't need to do as much of the stability. The machine does the stability for you. And so you could use that later in a session. I wouldn't barbell back squat at the end of a session due to the higher neurological complexity. The, it's, it takes more coordination, more technique. It's a more technique heavy movement. Um, I really don't think there's that big of a difference for hypertrophy, I don't. For sport specific or uh, specific strength, if you're a power lifter and you need to free squat, then I think strength is more specific. You need to do the thing you wanna be stronger at to get stronger at that thing. For hypertrophy, I think it, is, it matters a bit less. 
Next question is, I'm uh, I'm not training to program RIR, not training to program RIR, coming back from injury, still beneficial or superfluous until fully healed? Not superfluous. Um, couple of things. One, we keep finding out that the threshold for adaptations is lower and lower than we thought. And so you might not be training to program RIR, but if you're even remotely close, uh, then you still might be getting benefits. A little bit less benefit, but still, be, still getting benefit. And depending on your injury, going through the motions and stimulating blood flow in those movements, starting to build some strength, even if it's at a low RIR, low RPE, whatever, is beneficial, like 100%. Um, and so you, I, my example would be my ankle right now. I'm coming back from injury in my ankle. Um, and doing leg training and putting some, you know, putting the ankle through some work specifically is actually necessary. It's exactly what I need to be doing to actually get stronger, get myself back. Um and so it depends how far away you are from failure, but long story short, I don't think it's superfluous. I do think it's beneficial. The range of benefits, you know, is different depending on how close you are going to failure, how close you are to the program RIR. If you were doing it with one pound dumbbells and at a 50 RIR, then yeah, probably not beneficial outside of like blood flow benefits. Um, but if you're at like a, you know, four, five, six RIR, and then I still think that there's some reason to do so. Oh, I think there's some reason to do so anyway, but probably still some actual benefit there. Next question, 10, 10 K calories for 14 days. How long to get back to normal weight? You had 10,000 calories every day for 14 days. How long to get back to normal weight? This is, I'm not dismissing the question. I just not really sure the practical application of this unless, I mean, even if you actually did this, I don't think there's a practical application to answering the question because outside of just like, you know, meeting that need to kind of know what's going to happen and when, um, if you ate 10,000 calories every day for 14 days, uh, you know, let's say your maintenance calories was 3000. That means you would have gained two pounds per day. You'd be up 28 pounds. Now these are all super rough back of the envelope math. This is not, it's not this simple math, but let's say you gained 25, 25 pounds doing this. Um, right. 10 K cals, being seven K cals, 7,000 calorie surplus every day, which would be a two pound gain times 14, 28 pounds. How long before you get back to normal weight? It would depend what you're doing over the, the, the course of that time. Um, you know, are you eating nothing? Are you eating maintenance? Are you eating surplus? Are you eating a, a smaller surplus? Are you eating in a deficit? How big of a deficit? How much are you moving? So I really don't know. Not really sure the practical application there. The truth is you, if you get like a very general statement is if you've gained weight, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's needless to worry about how long it will take, but you have to do the same thing. You have to get yourself into a calorie deficit one way or another through a combination of nutrition and movement. And so you just need to do that anyway. So I'm just gonna let you guys know my battery is running out on the camera. When it runs out, I'm just gonna end the episode. We're gonna call it there, but we got another couple minutes, so I'll do as much as I can. And if it shuts off, then we're done. Literally just ordered a power cable for this so that doesn't happen, but it's on the way and not here yet. Next question, difference between sitting and standing calf raises for hypertrophy. Yeah, really simply put, if you are, your calf basically is comprised of two muscles that we are looking at, the soleus and the gastroc. The gastroc crosses the knee joint, and so, if you bend at the knee, you are shortening that muscle. And if you are doing a straight leg calf raise, you are lengthening that muscle a bit more. And I would say that the soleus is gonna get hit either way. And so I would almost exclusively do standing calf raises just because that means you're gonna be training the gastroc in a bit more of a lengthened position, which is probably better for hypertrophy. And since we don't wanna be spending a fuck ton of time doing calf raises, we might as well pick the best bang for our buck exercises, which is going to be training those muscles in a more lengthened position, or at least the gastroc in a more lengthened position. And so the 
When your knee is bent, the you are training the gastroc in a more short position, which probably head-to-head, -head, volume per volume, is gonna be less hypertrophic than training it in a lengthened or straight leg position. And so generally, I'm gonna pick straight leg exercises just because we're not gonna, chances are your program's not gonna have, you know, more than two calf raise exercises. In, in my context, probably not ever more than one. And so if we're just gonna pick one exercise, I'm gonna be doing it with a straight leg because that's gonna train the, the gastroc in a more lengthened position, which is what we want or which is what's head to head, if you had to pick one exercise better for um, hypertrophy. Next question, do I have to have premium account at Train Heroic to have access to your coaching? Absolutely not, totally not. I really think the premium access just allows you to see uh, what other people are doing in terms of weight, uh, like what other people are doing and you can compare yourself and there's like a leaderboard and stuff like that. You absolutely don't need a premium account whatsoever to do the programming, no. Advice for vegetarians who wanna build muscle. Um, have vegetarian or vegan protein shakes and make just, listen, it's the same for you as it is for everybody else. You need to train for hypertrophy, sleep enough hours, eat enough calories and eat enough protein. Now the protein is the main difference because you're going to be without some of those main options um, that, you know, people who omnivorous people are going to have. And so my advice for you is to just focus on your protein intake and utilize supplementation to get there. And a lot of people, I'm not even gonna reference the documentary, but when it came out and they were looking at all these vegetarian athletes or vegan athletes, a lot of them use a ton of, of protein supplementation, which I think is actually a good idea, not to use a ton. First of all, I actually don't think there's anything bad with using a ton. What I mean is that don't be afraid to lean into having a shake, a large shake per day to get ahead of a big chunk of your protein requirements for the day. Um, I think that that is the biggest piece of advice. There's no difference in training and, and physiology in terms of like the way you need to train or anything like that, the way you need to sleep, what kind of programming. You just need to make sure you're getting enough protein, which is gonna be slightly harder because you have a reduced amount of options. And so lean into the options that you have. And I would highly recommend a vegetarian or vegan protein source. If you're a vegetarian, egg white protein can be great. If you're a vegan, there's a million. Legion has a good one. There's honestly, vegetarian and vegan protein are, is excellent. Um, in the real world, when we're talking about like solid protein sources, yes, lots of plant protein sources are suboptimal. They're not complete protein sources. They lack a key amino acid, leucine, but protein powder companies have, they know this and they've made a protein powder that is a complete protein, has enough leucine, and is, do, is gonna do the job just as well as whey protein. It might not taste as good, it might be a little grittier, but it does the job. And so if you're a vegetarian, you need protein, make sure you, you are doing that one way or another, but one of the ways I would do is leaning into using a supplement like a, a vegan or vegetarian protein shake. When is your JLips Fitness merch coming out? This is something that I've been working on, not working on, but I've, I've struggled with because what I what I want is I've, I've already designed the shirts um, for the groups, for just my brand in general, but I need, I, I can't do it through like custom ink or anything like that. I need to have somebody who will take care of distribution as well. I'm not mailing this stuff out. And so right now what I'm looking for is a company that will take the design and open up a shop and do all of the distribution and shipping and obviously take a cut for that, but I don't wanna be doing any of that stuff. So I'm working on figuring out what is the best company for that. Do I program chest flies or are, are press arounds a better option for hypertrophy? Here's the deal. Press arounds, anatomically speaking, are a better option than a chest fly because they keep the arm tighter to the torso. Further the arm gets from the torso, a little bit worse leverage for the pecs to contribute. So a pec fly where the arm goes very far away from the torso is gonna be a slightly worse option than a press around, which keeps the arm tight to the torso. 
That said, that said, I still program peck flies sometimes. Now, I will say that there is a big asterisk here because peck flies are much easier. Let's say it's a peck deck fly in the peck deck machine or a cable fly. I wouldn't program so much a dumbbell fly. Um, they're much easier to execute than a press around. Now that might be taking an easy way out and being like, hey, we're gonna, you know, why not teach people the press around if it's better? That's true. I, I do teach people the press around, I teach my one-on-one clients to press around. But even then, it is a technique that most people will find difficult. And a peck deck is a bit more of a plug and play. And when we design a machine, like I'm sure we will at some point that is optimal for the press around, I will jump right in with both feet. And I will do press rounds in my programming because I don't mind spending weeks and months trying to get the technique right. Um, but it is certainly a more difficult technique and I don't know if that juice is worth the squeeze for most people to really struggle with. And I, and there's, it, listen, this, you can hear it in my voice. It's something that I struggle with where it's a slightly better option, not gonna be like a, a high magnitude of difference. And it's a much more difficult technique. Uh, and I've had experiences where people have been frustrated thinking like, well, even even when they're doing it right, I don't feel it, doesn't feel right. Um, and so it's just a more, more difficult technique. And so we have to weigh the balance of how plug and play is this exercise versus how much more benefit are we getting? And that's gonna come down to the individual. How much appetite do you have to work on this technique for a marginal benefit? If you have that appetite, let's fucking go for it. But I also don't think it's a big deal if you're like, man, I don't really wanna fuss around with that too much and a peck fly has always given me a really good stimulus, so I'll stick with that. I think that's a fine rationale as well. Uh, next question. Do you and Jenna have dinner time rules? Example, no phones. You know, we were super strict on this for a while to a point, it's so funny because it, it is correlated with other like styles of being strict at something and then being more flexible. We were strict with this for a really long time. It was like two hours or 90 minutes of the night, dinner, and then we watch a show, no phones. But I think we did it for long enough to really get out of the habit of touching our phones during that time. And now if it happens, usually both of us know that we're not really supposed to be doing that. And so, you know, it has to be really important. And I was just thinking about it, like one of us will grab the phone and, and look at the other one in general, and be like, well, I'm just tracking something, chill. Or, um, you know, it's some really important thing that can't wait and think that those are both fine. But we do have rules of, you know, it used to be a very conscious rule. And I think now it has become subconscious, which is like one of those things where it's like starting off being like con like very conscious and a bit more strict about something might lead over the long term to it becoming a bit more subconscious. And I think that that's totally happened with us. We also have a rule of usually no phones when we go out for a walk with Callie so that we're all together as a family. And again, the only time to, that you would break that rule is if it's something super, super important and we would communicate that to each other. But I love this question and I think that that's a really good idea. Um, I fucking live on my phone as you guys know. And so it's really easy for for me to be like always having one foot in that pool and always like kind of not ever being 100% present, it'd be very easy for me to slip into that to that space. And so this is something that's helped. Next question, do you do nutrition coaching on its own or just nutrition and training? I will only do the nutrition only side if you are in my group programming. Um, other, I, I want to be doing both and whether both means you're in my group program and we're doing nutrition one-on-one -on, -one on the side, or I'm taking on the one-on-one -on -one programming and nutrition all together. That's great. Um, listen, I understand that that's not how everybody might work, but it's just put it very simply. That is what I want to be doing. I want, I'm very interested in the training side as well and very interested in doing both of them synergistically. It, it can be a bit not always, but it can be a bit uh, difficult when you're dealing with two different people. If you have a coach for training and you have me for nutrition, like we 
we do need to be on the same page. And, and that's not so hard to do, but sometimes it it's a bit, uh, there's a bit of a disconnect there. And so just to keep it super simple, and it's something that I enjoy doing. So it's not even like, I'm not even saying you can't do this because the, the results would be worse, but it's something I want to do. And so that's just how I would prefer running the uh, my business. Uh, do homebodies ever get to do squats, high bar or low bar? Absolutely. Um, oh my God, yes. Um, yes, 100%. I think we we back squatted last mezzo. You know, listen, we can talk a lot of shit about back squatting. It being not optimal for hypertrophy, it, it having some things that are suboptimal. But if you train at home with mostly free weights, we are gonna back squat. So I don't think we're back squatting this mezzo. I think our lengthened quad work is in a foam roller hack and a split squat variation, but we will sure as shit do back squatting. Um, high bar or low bar is not something I will ever directly program. I will program squatting for quads or squatting for glutes, so a more hip dominant or a more knee dominant squat. And if you want to use a low bar position for the hip dominant squat and a high bar for the quad dominant squat, that's fine. But where the bar goes on your back is not actually changing the benefit, like the bias in terms of muscles. Um, it is, changing it's like the grip thing that we talked about earlier it doing a low bar squat might naturally bring your squat into a more hip dominant pattern just because the bar is further down your back and it will allow you to use a bit more of your posterior to lift the weight more glutes more uh lower back right um but it doesn't actually change what's going on next question Ooh, we're coming up on an hour here, guys. Really got ahead of myself here with this like 30 minute bullshit, but we're really going ahead here. So we're gonna stop at an hour. I can't believe my battery hasn't died. It's like blinking at me, but oh well. Next question. Goal is hypertrophy. Should I add weight to the bar for squats when I can add rep when I can rep out more than 12 reps? Um the question that you're kind of asking is, is it is it suboptimal to do more than 12 reps? Can I just like is there something wrong with me doing more than 12 reps? Um and there's there's a lot of things we can discuss with this question. I think I think generally if your coach programs a rep range and you're getting to the top of the rep range in that movement, then I would strongly consider going up in weight to stay within the rep range. But if you go on and you do 12 reps and 13 reps and 14 reps, the research is pretty clear. It's the proximity to failure that matters. If you do a set of six to failure and a set of 15 to failure, you're gonna get the same hypertrophy. Now there is a question that is begged here where it says, well, if I can do it in seven reps, why would I do 13? Why waste more reps? And I think that's an interesting argument and one that I kind of agree with. Um, but there are some reasons actually. It's not it's not like there are no reasons to do 13 reps. Um, what I would say is just question the quality of the movement at 13 reps versus the quality of the movement at let's say six to eight reps. You might find that doing squats in the north of 10 reps is more cardiovascularly demanding. And by doing more than 10 reps, you make, or you make the chance of cardiovascular system being the limiting factor, you make that greater. You increase the chance that the cardiovascular system is the limiting factor, right? For me, more than six sets of squat, six reps of squats starts to feel like a cardio movement for me. Now that's specific to me, my cardiovascular system in the squat, endurance wise is probably not great because guess what? I don't train the squat in higher than 10 reps. So I'm not adapted to that sort of thing. Um, but at face value here, if you do a set of 13 squats or a set of seven squats and both of them are equally close to failure, you're gonna get the same benefit from both. If you like squatting in the 10 to 15 rep range, it's gonna work great. If you prefer squatting in the five to 10, it's gonna work great. Generally speaking, if you have a coach that programs the eight to 12 rep range, for example, and you are at 12, then I think just by the nature of giving in to what the coach is probably intending, I would go up and load to bring the reps back down into the rep range, yes. 
but I don't think net hypertrophy is gonna change that much if you do 13 reps or if you do nine reps, if they're both equally close to failure, quality reps, so long as the 13 rep set is not limited by your cardiovascular system, so long as neither of them are limited by cardiovascular system. Cool, uh, sorry, this is the second part of the question. It said, considering at 12, my form breaks down slightly and I'm doing three by 12. I mean, your form is breaking down because you're getting close to failure. Um, it, it might break down less in a set to failure in the lower rep range, and that is one reason. Because the movement is very technical, maybe you find that higher rep sets, even equally close to failure, tend to lead more to form breakdown. That is totally an anecdote that I would kind of nod along with, but it is not inherent for sure. Often hear that newbies can more easily lose fat, gain muscle at the same time, but what defines a newbie? How much muscle you have, how long you've been training. That's, and it's, it's a, it's a nondescript semi-arbitrary term. There's no objective end point in which you are not a newbie. The more muscle you gain, the less you are a newbie. The more you do, the more of an adaptation you get, the harder it will be to get more of that adaptation. The less of an adaptation you get, like the, 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 the more new you are to training, thus you have less of those muscle growth adaptations, the easier it will be to get those adaptations. The fat law side of things, not so much from a newbie perspective. The question you're asking is, it's, is it easier for people who don't have a lot of training experience to build muscle at maintenance? And the answer is yes, and that's because the threshold for adaptations is very low because they don't have a lot of those adaptations. The more of those adaptations you get, the higher that threshold for growth and for further adaptations goes. Alrighty, we're gonna chop it there. Still a couple of questions here. Thank you to everybody who asked a question and I will see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever wanna get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks guys, have a good one.